Oh, good morning, folks. Um, grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's where we're going to be today. While you're doing that, I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you again for the opportunity to be together as your people. We don't take it for granted. Maybe sometimes we do. Lord, help us to see the, the glory, to see the absolute privilege it is for us to be gathered as your people from whatever backgrounds, whatever events, whatever circumstances have um, shaped the last week for us. Uh, Lord, we are here and we are listening. And so teach us this morning, we pray through your word in your own name. Amen. All right, for those who were here last week, um, or maybe if you weren't, you caught up online, you know that we were uh, considering some pretty confronting uh, topics, that around issues of sexual immorality in the church, um, the church's response to that, how Paul addressed it. And one of the things I mentioned last week is that um, Paul addressed this issue by saying, look, there's some really significant sin that was on the surface. It was, in fact, in this case, it was actually really plainly obvious within the, the context of the church life. So there was sin on the surface. But then we talked about the fact that where Paul drives in that passage is he, he names it, he addresses it, but he starts to sort of dip below the surface. He wants to dig a little bit deeper into the hearts of what's going on. And we saw that there was sin beneath the surface, which was just as important to deal with. I think that sort of sets a pattern for a lot of this book, actually. Paul addresses a number of topics or issues that you might notice as we're reading through it. And, and some of them are quite obvious on the surface. They're behaviours, they're things that you would notice. Maybe not on your first Sunday visiting the church in Corinth, you turn up, the greeting team says, welcome to the church in Corinth. We're so glad you're with us. Of course, they've learnt as a church, it's poor manners to ask visitors to stand up. But nonetheless, you feel welcomed by the church. Maybe you don't see it on the first Sunday, but hang around a little bit around this community of God's people and something after a while would start to feel a bit off. There's sin on the surface, but there's something significant going on underneath. I guess one way of looking at this sort of dynamic would be to compare it maybe to uh, a symptom and a disease, right? The disease is often hidden. Often, maybe in our own body, there's something that's going on and it's hard to put a finger on it and eventually what we often deal with are symptoms, the things that come to the surface, you know, something the way that's not quite right or it might be a particular um, mark or it could be a lump or it could be any number of other things, but they're symptoms. They're usually more easily seen, often more easily felt. Now, of course, I've done extensive medical training. <laughs> I have a first aid certificate. 
But you don't even need a first aid certificate this morning to know that you don't treat a disease, you don't cure a disease by just treating symptoms, right? I mean, we all know that. In fact, we have a pretty common saying in Australia. Um, when we see some type of foolishness, some sort of superficial thing, we will often say, that's a Band-Aid solution, all right? Just stick a Band-Aid over it. It's not going to fix it. So even though in some ways we are changing topics this morning, we finish 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going into 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I think Paul is still dealing with symptomatic problems. Um, there are fundamental issues underneath. And we're going to see that, I think, play out this morning in this passage as well. Now, I think there's a lot for us to absorb on and um, reflect on in this passage, even if we're not facing the same types of symptoms. And I'm, I'm not aware that anyone in this church is currently in legal action with anybody else as a part of this church. Um, maybe that's the case. But even if we're not facing those sorts of symptoms... I think that we'll see that there's some underlying issues that all of us need to reflect on. Be prayerfully approaching God and saying, God, can you show me if this is happening in my own life? So we need God's help in doing this. Um, we need his voice. We need his words. We need his spirit. So let's allow him to speak 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Um, I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. I'm just going to read the, the opening verse for the moment, and we're going to work our way through down to about verse 11 um, is the plan for this morning. So here's verse 1. If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Question mark. So I think here's, the, here's the, the symptom that we were talking about a moment ago. Here's the surface level issue that's going on that you would notice if you hung out in the church in Corinth for a little while. And maybe it would have played out in subtle ways to begin with. Maybe when you went up and were served coffee or tea and a uh, Arnott's biscuit in the church in Corinth, maybe you would have noticed that, hey, that guy over there never seems to go over and talk to that guy over there. Or maybe you can sort of see the not-so-subtle um, animosity that builds up even when there's not words spoken. We know about that, don't we? That can happen. The, the symptom in a nutshell is this. Christians within the church had let frustrations... Um, with each other, frustrations with each other, grow untreated, unresolved, to the point that they were taking legal action against each other in the city court. All right? That's the symptomatic behaviour that Paul's addressing. He, he says that there very clearly in verse 1, um, there's a disputes that are going on between Christians within the same church and these disputes had actually boiled over and were now in, in the town court, in the, the legal system. 
He names them as being, you have brought them before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Now, Paul doesn't say what those frustrations were based on. He, he uses a word, though, that is pretty commonly associated with civil issues, though, on, at the time. So maybe like um, disputes or grievances to do with um, building or, or property, uh, some type of civil matter, maybe a service that was performed by one party and not honoured by the other or, or something like that. The Christian Standard Bible, as, as I've just read it, talks about a dispute um, other translations, maybe if you're reading from the English Standard Version, it will say the word grievance. There is some type of grievance, some type of dispute that's going on. And in one sense, the dispute is not entirely the issue here for Paul. He's saying this dispute, this grievance has boiled over and it's now into the legal system of the town. So I want you to see from the opening verse here that Paul does not take very kindly to this course of action. He's, how dare you, you know, that type of response. I think to see why, we need to sort of track with him over the next 10 or 11 verses or so to sort of try and see if we can just sort of grapple with his logic a little bit. What does this symptomatic issue expose underneath? What disease has taken root in the church in Corinth? And And I would say that we need to stand on guard against um, in this church, in this age. For now, all we need to know is that Paul can't believe that the Corinthians would try to settle their grievances and settle their disputes before the unrighteous instead of the saints. You can see that, I think, pretty clearly from verse 1. Now, the first step in trying to unravel the logic here is we're going to do this in three parts. I've sort of broken up the, the passage into three main areas. The first one is, do you not know? Or don't you know, maybe is the way that your um, Bible would say that. Do you not know? And that's because there's now two questions, uh, two questions, two ways that Paul's going to attack this sort of train of thought and both of them are used, I think, to help diagnose what is the deeper issue here. All right? What is going on in the relationships and the dynamics of the church that this would occur? So both of these questions begin with, do you not know? Have a look at the first one found in verse 2. Paul says, or don't you know that the saints will judge the world. There's the question. Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? So two questions in the way that the Christian Standard Bible phrase it, both of them paired together to form one rhetorical question. Now, a rhetorical question is a question which means that When Paul asks it, and when the listeners hear it, they all know the answer. They all know the answer without having to try and spell it out. And the question sort of takes on one of those sort of if-then relationships. If this is true, Paul is saying, then this also is true. Do you not understand that, he says? Do you not know that? 
So in this case, we need to know that as redeemed children of God, both the Corinthians and for the church in Raymond Terrace today, as redeemed children of God, do you know that we have a future job description? The saints, Paul says, will judge the world. Now, don't come and ask me, Chris, what's that going to look like? I have no idea. Not a clue. Studied it, read it, read some other people much smarter than me. Guess what? They don't know either. (laughs) I felt so much better about myself. Look, I have no idea what that will look like. I don't, I don't know how that will happen, or I don't even know at what point in God's great plan of redemptive history that this will occur. I don't know. But it will happen. It will happen. The saints will judge the world. That means that you... And I will one day sit in a position of authority to judge the world. That is massive, okay? That is huge. I don't know if that scares you. It scares me. I can't decide whether I'm going to have porridge or toast sometimes. I don't, oh, what do I do? Oh, that one's got cinnamon in it. That's pretty good. But I could put cinnamon on the toast. That would be great as well. I mean, the idea of me and you one day judging the world, but somehow in God's great perfect scheme of redemption, you and I will have a role to play in that. We'll sit in positions of authority to judge the world. We, we will weigh up matters of life and death. And Paul says, if that is true, and the implication is, it is true, that will happen. So Paul says, if that is true, then why why would we not be able to judge matters now? If that will be what we one day will accomplish and do, Paul says, why wouldn't you be able to do it now? Especially if they have to do with trivial matters. Not matters of judging the world. Not not matters of weighing up life and death, but trivial matters held under the light of eternal things. The implied answer that Paul wants the Corinthians to hear, what we need to hear this morning, the implied answer is, you should be able to sort these things out yourself. All right? Now, there's another question, another don't you know question. Do you not know, this is verse 3, that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Now, if I don't know what it means to judge the world... I am completely clueless when it comes to what does it mean to judge angels. But I don't, think, I don't think we need to get bogged down in the, well, how will that work? Is there a special court case where why are, some angels, why are the angels getting judged? And are we going to be... Don't worry about that. 
Paul's point is not how that's going to happen, it's the fact that it will happen. And don't you know that, that we will judge angels, Paul says. So how much more? So it's a comparative thing. If that is true, then this is true. If we will one day judge the world, if we will one day judge angels, how much more? Can you see the comparative, the, the relative nature to that statement? If that's true about then, then he says, how much more should we be able to judge matters of this life? So I hope you can see the pattern that's repeating there. Not only will we judge the world, but we will also be in a place of authority to judge angels. And that seems crazy, right? If we're honest, it seems crazy to us. Us, sitting in a, sitting in a place of deciding eternal realities. And, but we will. We will. And so if that is true, Paul says, then why not matters of this life? And again, the implied answer is the same as the first question. You should be able to sort these things out yourself. So here's the the second division of this passage that I want you to to see. The first was based around these questions, this repeating question of, do you not know? We need to get our thinking straight here. This is our future reality. Paul says, if that's true, then you need to start working some stuff out here on earth as well. Because, here's the second division in this passage, the world is watching you. The world is watching. So these are the questions that are worth asking. Do you not know, Paul says, twice? Then what is it that drives Paul to ask those sorts of questions? So read with me from verse 4, we'll read down to verse 8, and then we'll reflect on it for a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4 says this, So if you have such matters, there is referring to these, what he calls trivial, or things about the earth, or um, civil disputes of some kind, if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. So here's the issue. Paul can see that there was, I would say, a culture, um, a culture in Corinth, where the highest value was self The gaze of the church had drawn inward. Now, there is a way that you can be inward-looking as a church, which is kind of like pretty good. Um, As a church, we would generally say, hey, we should be an outward-looking church. We should be a church that is concentrating and viewing on those 
who need to hear the hope of the gospel. We need to be thinking about how do we live out our life in front of the believers, uh, unbelievers of this world? How can we um, be salt and light? How can we bring hope to our communities? We want to be an outward-looking church. Now, there is an inward-looking way that I think is still really valuable, and that's where we actually view the, the other people in our church as more insignificant, more important than ourselves. We, we're looking always to think, how can I bless you? How can I serve you? How can I um, draw you closer to your relationship with Jesus? That's a really um, helpful and good way to still be inward focused. But that's not what Paul's saying here, I think. The gaze of the church had turned inward and not towards the good of one another, but the good of self. The good of the individual. A culture of self-centeredness had emerged in the church and it was thriving. It was thriving. I think it seems that the church had forgotten or worse yet, did not care that they were always being watched. That every single fractured and failing relationship that was playing itself out in the courts, it was a living billboard. A living billboard that screamed out in contradiction to the message that was preached from their pulpit every Sunday. You know, we, we preach, a church that loves the Bible and loves the gospel will preach weekly in some fashion that Jesus Christ lives and that if he lives he's redeemed us and that here we are once broken people now made new in Christ restored and redeemed in relationship to him and restored and redeemed into relationship with each other and then I said I'm taking you to court bozo and what happened there screams the contradiction to everything that we preach from here the world was watching them And guess what? Just as the world was watching them, it is watching us as well. It is. In the 2,000 years that have passed, not much has changed. The world is still sceptical of the claims of Christ. The message of the cross still sounds foolish. It does. The church is being pushed to the margins of society. We can whinge and wail all we like about it. We can get together and talk about the good old days of when church was so significant in our society and and had a voice in politics and in culture. But this is the reality. The world is watching and the world is pushing and looking for ways to diminish the influence of the church. So so what Paul is talking about here has never been about and will never be about saving face. He's not talking about to the church in Corinth. He's not saying to us today, hey, listen, don't, you know that old saying, don't hang your dirty laundry out for the world to see. You ever heard that saying? Maybe younger ones haven't. 
See, there's this way that we've thought about this as a church in the past, which I don't think is particularly helpful, where we've closed up ranks a little bit. And we said, oh, we don't want to see, we don't want to let the church see that there's some sin. We better hide it. That's not what Paul's talking about. This has always been and will always be about the integrity of our Christian witness. This is not about shame. This is not about keeping secrets. This is about the integrity of our Christian witness. Now, I have a really important clarification to make here. If you've tuned out for a moment, I want you to tune back in. Paul's admonition to not take each other to court is not a blanket statement about Christians not using the legal system. It's not. His statement is restricted to, as he says, such matters. If you have such matters, civil disputes maybe, personal grievances. I think it is to our disgrace that churches have not only tolerated abuse of all kinds within the church, but have been harbouring and protecting the perpetrators of such abuse. Victims have been hung out to dry and abandoned, told not to bring disrepute to the church, told to just forgive and move on. Right, 1 Corinthians 6 is not an excuse to overlook sin. It isn't. So you can be sure that if abuse occurs within this church, we will always support the victim and our advice will always be to pursue legal support. That being said, in such matters that Paul is talking about, why would we bicker and fight with each other over matters of possession while the world watches on and says, I knew it, I knew it. I knew the whole thing was a load of garbage, right? They aren't any different to us. That's, that's Paul's concern in this matter. So the first part of this passage was, don't you know? Do you not know? This, this is your calling. This is what God's calling you to be. Surely there's someone in your church who can help arbitrate between these divisions, help arbitrate between these grievances or these disputes. Why do you need to go and sort those out before unbelievers, before a world that is watching on and just looking for any excuse? He says, sort it out yourself. In fact, he says, the fact that you even have a dispute in the first place is already a failure for you. It's already to your shame that that's occurring. And this is where I think we finally get to the very heart of the issue, what's lurking beneath the surface in this church, what can lurk beneath the surface of any church. This is the third section that I want you to look at. And I've just titled it, Be Who You Are. Be Who You Are. This last section, I think, is, is often cherry-picked by Christians to make strong statements against our favourite sins. Now, we have favourite sins that we harbour within ourselves, sins that we don't want to deal with. They're our favourite sins. 
But we also have favourite sins of other people. They're the, they're the ones that we like to drag to the surface. So our own favourite sins we like to keep covered, but the favourite sins that are in other people, we like to bring those ones to the surface. Look at them. Look at those sinful people, right? And this passage is one of those places that Christians have loved to have done that. So in, in a list of sins, what we tend to do is elevate one or two to highlight them, maybe use them as weapons against you know, those sinful people out there. The interesting thing to remember, though, is that when Paul writes this list of sins, he's not talking about the people out there. He's talking about the people in here. He writes this list of sins to admonish Christians, not to shame the world. This isn't a different topic to what we've just been talking about, but he's using it to drive to the very heart of the issue. So if squabbling with one another, bickering with one another in the courts is the symptom, I think this is where we discover what the disease is. The symptom is bickering and fighting and, and absorbing and getting. The disease is living with a false identity. Living with a false identity. Let's read down to verse 11. So verse 9 down to verse 11. Paul says, don't you know, there's that question again, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived. There's a clue for us. With our identities, we, we can live deceived lives. Deceived lives about ourselves. We're not even talking about looking at anybody else at the moment. Paul's saying, look at your life. Right? Don't be deceived. And here comes the list. No sexually immoral people. Idolaters. Adulterers. Males who have sex with males. No thieves. Greedy people. Drunkards. Verbally abusive people. Or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Now... The hammer on the nail in this is the sentence that comes next. He says, and some of you used to be like this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So here's the bottom line. There are only two types of spiritual identities that exist in this world. Only two. There's lots of different variations, I'm sure, but we can boil it all down and we can say there are two types of spiritual identities that exist in this world. Here's the first identity. The first identity are people who have lived their lives characterised by a a lack of sexual boundaries, maybe, or by false worship. I'm just going to reword Paul's list here. Or by being unfaithful in their relationships. Or by holding to a distorted view of human sexuality. Or by taking what isn't theirs. Or by never being satisfied and always pursuing more 
or by burying their pain in substance abuse or by lashing out and letting their tongue have free reign or by deceiving others for their own gain. Right? A life, Paul says, characterized by these things is a life that is out of place in the kingdom of God. That's the first spiritual identity that you can come across in this world. Here's the second. The second identity are people who have lived their lives characterized by, sexual, uh, by lack of sexual boundaries. They've lived their lives characterized by false worship, by being unfaithful in their relationships, by holding to a distorted view of human sexuality, by taking what isn't theirs, by being never satisfied and always pursuing more and by burying their pain in substance abuse and by lashing out and letting their tongue have free reign or by deceiving others for their own gain. And you're thinking, Chris, you just read the first list. And I did, but with one essential difference. But then these people have been embraced by the grace of God. Because it is grace that always makes the difference. It always has and it always will. Grace saves people. Not special people, not better people, not good people. Grace saves people. This morning, if you know the grace of God, it's not because you are better. It's not because you are above the sinful tendencies of our tainted hearts. You can't say that we are beyond all that. We can't say, thank God that I am not like that man over there. I can't. And I know that's true because Paul, when he gets to the end of his list, he looks at the church and he says, and such were many of you. The two spiritual identities that exist are sinful people who have rejected the grace of God and sinful people who have been embraced by the grace of God. Then comes my favourite word in the Bible. But. Just waiting for Maddie to laugh at me. Some of you used to be like this, verse 11 says. But you were washed. I want you to look at the, the, the tense Okay, sorry for a little bit of an English lesson here for a moment. English language is a little bit simpler than other languages, though. We've only got three tenses, really. Past, present, future. Start talking Spanish or something like that, and we've got all sorts of weird tenses going on. Past, present, and future. And words are written in a way to know what tense we're talking about. When did this occur? Did it happen in the past? Is it happening now, the present, or will it happen in the future? I want you to notice the tense that Paul writes this in. But you were, hands up if we know what tense that is. Yeah? Past. Very good. Very good. This side of the room gets a sticker on their chart. All right? Very good. 
but you were washed. And most of us just go, oh, amen, of course, right? Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. My sin were dealt with then, 2,000 years ago. My sin has been, I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. We love that, don't we? Easy, right? Past. You were sanctified. Oh, that one's a bit trickier. Past, present, or future tense. What is it? Were. You were sanctified. Past tense. Yeah, but how can that be right? I still act like a jerk sometimes. How, how is it that God has sanctified me? Right? You were justified. Past tense. God did a miracle at the cross, and it wasn't just removing your sin that you had there and dealing with it, and you can say, well, I've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. God did a miracle, and it's this. Despite the, the ongoing effect and taint of sin in your life, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That has happened That's who you are. If you are in Christ, this is your new identity. A sinner saved by grace. You might have a past. We all do. You might still struggle with shame. I'm guessing that most of us do. You might even still be dealing with the natural consequences of past sin. But I want to hear this morning, that is not your identity. It's not your identity. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You are in Christ and you are sealed with the Spirit. This is your identity. And Paul's point of this whole passage is, so be who you are. Be who you are. Act like you actually are. Behave in a way that is consistent with who God has made you to be. This is the bottom line. He says, live out this identity. Live out grace in front of a world that is watching with critical eyes. Live out grace in the middle of your grievances and disputes with one another. That's why I think Paul says, why wouldn't you rather be wronged? Why wouldn't you rather be cheated even? And we might sort of think, wow. But Paul, are you saying that we should all just be doormats here? No, I don't think that's what he means. I think he's asking us to figure out what does it look like for an identity that's been saved of grace to interact with other people who are living out their identities saved by grace. Can't you work this out, he says? Can't you get together and say, hey, listen, we're both fractured people that Jesus loves for some reason. Can we sort this out somehow in a way that honours him, that's consistent with who we are, consistent with the witness of the gospel in this world? Live out your grace in the midst of your grievances with each other. This is what kingdom living is actually all about. It is a consistency, an authenticity between who we 
are in Christ, your identity, and how we live in this world, your relationships, your behavior. Be who you are. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 11. Next week, we're going to go from verse 12 down to the end of the chapter. The week after, um, fair warning for those of you who have read ahead a little bit and deal with 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there's some tricky and confronting stuff for us to think through. So please be praying, reading, praying for me in that process as well and for us as a church as we grapple with this. Um, But we're going to be talking again in the next week or two about issues to do with uh, sexual authenticity with each other, how we behave, how that reflects who we are and our identity and, and what happens when those relationships break and fracture and fall apart and how, how do we navigate that as people controlled by grace? Um, that's where we're going in the next couple of weeks. So just be aware. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the way that you love us. Thank you that we are washed. We are sanctified. We are justified. And some days we don't see the effect of that, but, but the miracle of salvation is that you look at us in Christ and you say, you are. You are those things. Lord, help us as a church in our context and in our situation be who we are. Live consistently with our new identity in Christ. Help us to deal with each other in our disputes, in our grievances. Maybe it's not things that we would ever go to court over, but there's still things that sometimes put pressure on our relationships and the world is watching. So help us to be aware of that. Help us to live in mind of the witness of the gospel that we have in the way that we relate to each other. And Lord, we are very dependent on your spirit doing something in us that we are naturally not inclined to do. So shape us, Lord, we pray. Teach us through this word. In Jesus' name, amen.